Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. It's a widely held belief that the cheaper it is to borrow money, the wealthier we'll all be. But C.D. Howe Institute Associate Director of Research Jeremy Cronick and the team crunched the numbers. It turns out lowering interest rates quickly widens the income inequality gap and doesn't have the intended impact on inflation we first thought. This at a time when the shadow banking system that lacks the same stringent controls as traditional banks continues to grow. We began our conversation by talking about the fact that every time the Bank of Canada manages inflation, that has a knock-on effect that politicians should be watching too. For a long time, I think economic models largely used what they call a representative agent. So everybody was the same, right? right. You've got a basket of goods. You've got a family of people. Right. right, exactly. So you're all the same. Everybody makes about the same. And so anyways, but we all know that that's not really true. And and a lot of central banks, including the bank, have done a lot of work on, on sort of modeling heterogeneous agents. So many, you know, basically what would be equivalent of, of you know our country with all these different types of people. Uh, but what we showed in that paper on income inequality is that that matters for inflation. Because again, the, uh, one of the other arguments used to be that over the course of a business cycle, interest rates go up, they go down. So whatever the impact is on inequality nets out over a business cycle. But that's only true if the effects are symmetric. So if you lower rates um, and, and it has an effect on income inequality, it's the same size and magnitude that it is when you increase rates. And, and, and what we show in this paper is it's not actually symmetric. And so what we call an expansionary monetary policy shock, or when rates are lower than expected, uh, we do see uh, an increase in income inequality, meaning that more resources are moving to the top of the income uh, distribution. And those people at the top tend to spend less as a percentage of their income than those at the bottom. And so that has an impact on inflation. Well, let's flesh that out. Is that what you're telling me that um, a wealthy individual who spends um, a smaller percentage of their overall income into an economy, when interest rates go down, that means their cost of borrowing goes down, which means they've got more money, but they're keeping that money in their pocket. It's not making it back into the economy versus someone who would be in a middle or lower income bracket. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's basically, maybe you should have done this interview. <laughs> you know, that, that, no, that's basically it. I mean, in, in some ways, uh, th that's that's the perfect answer. People uh, tend to spend more uh, out of their income at the lower end of the distribution. They have to, right? And so uh, when they do that, that, that creates uh, sort of that some ad additional inflation, if you will, compared to those at the top, and that matters for monetary policy. So as, as the central bank mo monitors and forecasts economic behavior, I think they, the point we're making in this paper is that these effects aren't symmetric, and so you really need to, to take them into consideration in, in your modeling. So then help me square the circle on the income inequality side of it. Is it a simple case of a lower or middle income Canadian, because they're spending a greater percentage of their income into the economy, they're not saving it. They don't, they're not building their wealth to the degree that someone who is in a higher income bracket and therefore not spending as much and getting the benefit of cheaper interest rates. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's basically the idea. Those at the bottom are, are not able to save as much. And so 
you know, they'll take that money or the extra dollar that they earn and they'll they'll spend more of it than, than someone at the top will. I mean, maybe in absolute dollars they don't, but certainly as a percentage they do. And, and then, and, and again, also the thing that's also to keep in mind that we point out in this paper, the basket of goods that you said earlier is different for someone at the bottom and someone at the top. And it could be that the prices within that basket vary more or they move up and down more, right? Some prices, you know, you, you know just go to the grocery store that seems like prices are always moving on on food and maybe you know the sweaters that you buy the price is basically always the same right so there's a stickiness to the price so depending on that variability depending on how much those prices move um, that basket of goods also matters for 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 thinking about inflation so is the inverse true as well when interest rates rise and consumers pull back on their spending does the higher end income bracket pull back less and therefore contribute more to the economy and therefore actually narrow that inequality so we actually so that's interesting so we actually find that the effect and this is the symmetry the asymmetry thing i was mentioning earlier we find the effect isn't as strong on the contractionary side so it's true your argument is is essentially correct but we still find the magnitudes as big because i think what happens happens is with the contractionary monetary policy because the economy doesn't do as well any of the benefit let's say of the resources shifting over to to the wage side of it is smaller and so you get the typical impact on inflation but you're not getting as much of that impact on on income inequality so here's the $64,000 question and I can see the smile on your face what's the solution yeah, I mean, so so it's it's one thing that might help answer that question. So take this in two steps. It's not that low interest rates versus high interest rates are what matters. It's it's the change in interest rate, right? So so the lowering of interest rates or the increasing of interest rates, but it's not that they are low or high. So from the bank's perspective, it's just understanding how when they make those changes, there's going to be this impact uh, on inequality, which matters for what's likely to happen to inflation. So it might mean that when you do have to lower inflation, when you do have to lower interest rates, you might have to lower them a little bit more to get that effect on inflation. And you don't need to do that as much on the contractionary side, um, which is tricky, right? Because especially in an environment where you're trying to get ideally the, the, the bank rate back to sort of more normal levels, right? You don't really want to be lowering it and there's only a limit to how far you can go. So it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act in that sense. And I can imagine the Bank of Canada would say, well, our focus is inflation targeting. Our flo- our focus is not on income inequality. That's the politician's job up the street there on yeah. Parliament Hill. And they'd be right. For them, though, I think what's important is to understand when they do something that does have an impact on a, on, on a variable, even if that variable is political, uh, you know, what does that then mean for inflation? So we tried to make that point clear in the paper that Yes, we. it's definitely a secondary issue from the perspective of their mandate, but that issue matters for, uh, for inflation. So to go back to your original point, if we do need to lower rates, um, you know, to stimulate, to, to do whatever in a recession, let's say, fiscal policy should pay attention to these issues of income inequality because they do have these other potential knock-on effects, like the bank having to lower the rate by more, which could then stimulate credit growth that we don't want. So, you know, it, it sort of ties all these things together, but you're, but you're right, you're, you know, for the bank, it, it's, it is about inflation. That's their mandate. That's what they should stick to. They should, our point is just that the income inequality variable matters for thinking through that. And you went through the books all the way back to when we first started targeting inflation, and you see the correlation 
all the way from day one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, an, it's interesting if you track it. I think people would be a bit surprised if they looked at the the income inequality in Canada because it, it it increased for much of the '90s into the mid 2000s. But since the crisis in Canada, at least, it's largely been flat, and even might have kind of we might have actually become a little bit more equal. Uh, so again, that was my point earlier about the low interest rates not being the issue. It's the change in, in interest rates that matters. Um, but there does seem to be a pretty high correlation and, and the impact of the that change in monetary policy does seem to really have an impact on uh, on income inequality. And we think it's through this kind of mechanism of resources going from wage earners to capital owners or vice versa. What role, if, if any, does the evolution of the Canadian economy play into this as well? Because when we first started targeting inflation at the Bank of Canada, we were largely a manufacturing-oriented economy with a lot of low-to-middle-income individuals physically putting widgets in a hole. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question. And, and what we tried to do in, in, in analyzing how monetary policy impacted income inequality and, and therefore inflation was to kind of separate out some of these observables. So some of these things that we, you know, that have a lot of other factors that, that, that are related to them that makes it hard to assess monetary policy's true impact on inequality. And we said, okay, let's control for all these things, the economy, someone's gender, someone's age. And let's say, okay, what's what's the impact on those things that we can't that we can't observe? Because these observables are they have they have some inequality built into them already, right? And so we can't really say it's monetary policy that caused this income inequality. And so it's a bit of a technical answer, but it's important, I think, in terms of understanding, at your point, you know, uh, what it is that you're really truly able to assess in, in, in this paper. You brought up gender. Uh, and trying to equalize that out of the the equation. I wonder if there's value in actually diving into the separation of genders when it comes to income inequality. No, no, there is. I mean, it, it's, I guess, the, 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 but to that point, right, the reason you do it is because if there's already inequality built into gender, to built into age, into experience, into the type of economy, then you can't really say that it's monetary policy that caused this uh, inequality. So, it's again, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky uh, technical point, but... But that's but you sort of have to abstract a little bit from those things. But you're right. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be looking into those things. It's just that monetary policy's impact on that would be very hard, I think, to to sort of tease out. So you you, you try and take out the part that you can't explain uh, with gender and with age and with with industry and that type of thing. With fears of slowing global growth, concerns are mounting that the Bank of Canada can't cut interest rates further. And as cheaper money continues to slosh around an underperforming economy, the so-called shadow banking industry is posing a risk to financial stability. Kronik and I discussed the title of the paper he co-authored, Water in the Wine. Well, that's why we have a communications team, because they're able to uh, come up with much better titles. I think the second half of that title was probably my idea, and the first part was uh, was the communications team. Monetary policy and the impact of non-bank financial intermediaries. Exactly. Well, to me, it made sense, right? And uh, and on the research side, I think, in our view, you know, we just we just focus on what the paper says, and we don't think about the, the sellability as much. And so uh, we've got a very good communications team, and that's why they came, they came up with this uh, with this title. When we talk about non-bank financial intermediation, I thought we were calling it shadow banking. Right. So, so we did for a long time. I mean, shadow banking, and and still, if you were to go on Google, uh, you would see the use of the shadow bank in, in a lot of different places. But I think what's important 
is that we're, we're these financial institutions are regulated, a lot of them. They're just not regulated as closely or as tightly uh, as banks. And so the Bank of Canada itself has also started to use this non-bank financial intermediary, which is not as exciting a, a term, I agree. But I think it's important that we want to bring them in into the mainstream and think about them in mainstream, but understand that they do have regulation and they play uh, an important role on the competition side, which is something that's needed in financial services. Well, let's sort of extend that shadow metaphor and shine a light on this, because in 2007-2008, with the financial crisis, we saw our neighbors to the south get hit a lot harder than us. And a lot of the credit for why we didn't suffer the same degree of pain has to do with the fact that our banking system is that much more regulated and we have that that many fewer transactions taking place in the shadow banking system. That is the concern, is that as these non-bank financial intermediaries start to grow, uh, you know, even in absolute terms, I mean, the interesting thing is from a share perspective, even with that growth, the share is about the same as it was pre-crisis. So, so that's that, and there's some security, I guess, in that. But, you know, just in absolute dollars, they are much bigger than they were 10, 15 years ago uh, in Canada. And so what's important is to understand what that all means, right? And to understand what that means from a monetary policy perspective, which we look at here, but also then from a, you know, as credit shifts between institutions, as deposits shift between types of institutions, what that means from a regulatory perspective. This is an industry that has basically doubled since the financial crisis. Yeah, correct. That's it. And, and as a percentage of GDP, it's gotten bigger. And, and, and so that matters. Well, then let's talk about what happens when things go wrong. In a traditional banking environment, the deposits are insured. But in this shadow banking world, they are not. And the equivalent of deposits for these organizations are securities, are investments, and that makes them inherently more risky. Yeah, no, that's true. And and the difference between a bank and a non-bank, as you point out, is is the deposit and credit action happens in the same institution. In, in the in the non-bank space, uh, it's separated. And so if I invest in a money market mutual fund, that creates a deposit-like uh, you know, uh, you know, money, even though you're right, it is an investment and it's not covered by CDSC, but then you're right, then it this sort of continues from there, right? I mean, uh, pr eventually private lenders will issue securities that money market mutual funds will invest in, and then those private lenders will lend to you and I for a mortgage. And so, um, you know, because of that, it, it's more complex from a regulatory perspective as well. To what do we attribute the growth? There's a few different things. I mean, one one thing is that, you know, in the, in, in the post-crisis uh, world, We've we've certainly tightened regulation and, and, and at at our uh, at our large traditional banks, and so perhaps that's created uh, an environment uh, you know for other institutions to play a role. Obviously, B twenty is a popular one, and there's some evidence early on that the the, the change the B twenty rule changes um, you know have caused you know, potential borrowers to move from traditional banks over to uh, non-banks. So what you're saying is that rules designed to help ensure that the system is more stable has actually increased the instability in it. Yeah, I mean, that in some ways, I guess that 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 is true. I think it's a little more complex. These non-banks have uh, systems in place to make sure that they're they're giving out quality loans. They're not looking to sort of ensure, you know, give loans to people who uh, you know, who are not credit worthy, right? So it's, it's not, I don't want to necessarily say that it's more unstable that way, but there is this shift and, and you have to realize that that exists. And then we need to think about what to do from a regulation perspective for, uh, for these other types of lenders. Well, then let's talk about that regulatory framework, because as you point out, it does exist, but um, the deposits aren't insured. Uh, we find ourselves talking about worst case scenarios. So let's 
figure out what a worst case scenario is and then figure out what the the regulations would be to prevent that sort of thing. I, I can imagine on a worst case basis, we'd be talking about stock market crash or an economic crash. What's the knock-on effect to these non-bank lenders? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good question, right? So, so uh, you know, if the, if the quality of the borrower are, is 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 the same as a traditional bank, and then and then with the B twenty test, if it's moved over to a non bank, uh, then then it may not be uh, as severe. But but let's think about what happens in a, in a crisis. So so we have these capital requirements, these liquidity requirements in place um, at traditional banks. Uh, non banks don't necessarily have those same requirements, though. To the extent that they issue securities and they and they still have operations with banks, the the regulation sort of uh, you know has a knock-on effect over to them as well. Um, and But then in a crisis period, um, hopefully those traditional banks will be able to use their capital buffers and their liquidity buffers that they have in place. Whether non-banks will be able to is less clear. And so, you know, then, and, and again, it's partly in the way they're funded, they're funded differently. Deposits are, you know, the reason we have, part of one of the reasons we have deposit insurance is to, to remove the risk of bank runs. People don't feel like they need to run to their bank and take out all their money. It's not going to be the same uh, at, at, at non-banks, obviously, and so there are these potential, uh, you know, instability risks, um, you know, in, in a crash situation. And is it accurate to describe the customer of a non-bank financial institution uh, as being one that is more likely to be on the razor's edge in an, an economic or, or stock market crisis because they're going to these banks, alternative banks, in the first place? You can make that case. I mean, the, the non-banks do provide competition as well. I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit here on this podcast, I have a mortgage at a, at a non-bank. I was perfectly qualified at a bank, but they offered a better rate. So I went there, right? I mean, but you're right. There's going to be situations where people can't get loans at banks, and then they'll turn to non-banks with that have potentially less uh, stringent regulation. So, so certainly, I think it's fair to characterize some of it that way. But I, but again, I, I do think there's a lot of value in these in, in these types of institutions. And I don't want that to get lost. Okay, so then what kind of regulations would ensure a greater sense of stability, yet at the same time not crimp the growth? That's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, I think put in this paper a discussion, a little bit of a discussion around capital requirements for some of the systemically risky ones. Like as they, not systemically risky, but systemically important, as I should say. You know, as, though, as they continue to grow in size, right now they may not be systemically important, but as they continue to grow, we have to monitor them. Perhaps we do need to level the playing field a little bit and make capital requirements a little bit more uh, stringent and think about, you know, how often, you know, they're running stress tests at their institutions. And so things like that, I think, are are important. But I think around the issue of uh, capital requirements and stress tests, I think that's where we can think about leveling the playing field a little bit between types of institutions. Well, you make me nervous when you talk about terms like systemically important, because after the financial crisis, we looked at banks and, and it led to the phrase, too big to fail. Yeah, right. What kind of uh, shadow bank should we consider to be systemically important? I'm not sure we have too many that would fall necessarily into that category, um, and I wouldn't want to call them out. <laughs> they, they may not. They may not be. Uh, you know, uh, big fans of that. But but certainly, if we think about private lenders uh, who have a large stake in 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 mortgage credit and in business credit, who are who are lending out. 
uh, who have books that are, you know, that are that if those books were to experience a fair amount of delinquencies, um, you know, or or there were to be, uh, you know, issues on the investment side where they're getting their funding from, then I think we, we need to pay attention to that uh, to that size. So as you're right, um, the NBFIs should be facing capital requirements and underwriting standards similar to those imposed on traditional banks. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea there. I mean, I think I think as we as we assess, as we start to really pay attention to the size of these non-bank financial intermediaries, I think then we can, you know, regulators can start to determine whether or not they've sort of hit that threshold where, and maybe it's a gradual uh, increase in capital requirements. It's not an all or nothing thing. It doesn't have to be that they have the exact same. Uh, uh, percentage or not, right? I mean, it can be a gradual thing based on size. And, and, and so I think that that's uh, the, the reason we made that suggestion. Well, then let's step back and, and sort of monitor the barometer of the economy right now. When it comes to monetary policy, what's your view on where we go through the course of 2020? Yeah, so I think, you know, the Bank of Canada largely held off lowering rates last year. Uh, they did completely actually hold off uh, on that. And it was, you know, if you looked at other central banks around the world, the Fed, et cetera, they were lowering rates. And so it was a bit interesting, a bit of the discussion on whether the bank should lower their rates as well. I mean, we, we export a lot and there's an effect on the exchange rate if we don't also lower rates. But at the end of the day, the banks said, look, we, we look out six to eight quarters and that's how we set our monetary policy. And if we think that from an inflation targeting perspective, this is the right rate to be at. And there's risks to lowering the rate for the bank. It can stimulate further uh, credit growth. And we all know that that's a, a concern for many people uh, in this country. And so um, the, the bank weighed both sides and they, they decided to hold on, on to rates. Interestingly, last year, you could have said that the, the Canadian economy was strong. The global growth was creating or the global economy was creating uncertainty. I would argue at this point, it's uh, it might have changed a little bit, flipped a little bit. Canada's economy is a bit weak in the fourth quarter, seems to be a bit weaker um, leading into 2020. And with the U.S. and China, you know, uh, uh, sort of getting that phase one deal uh, in place, uh, perhaps some of that uncertainty from a global perspective uh, is is turning around, though the the uh, coronavirus is obviously going <laughs> to dampen that, so that might offset that. But originally, uh, when the bank held rates the other week, uh, we made that argument, uh, Steve Ambler and I made that argument, that this, the, this, the script has flipped a little bit. But whether it changes anything from an inflation perspective for the bank, it's not clear at this point. That's why they, they held their, their rates to steady again. Jeremy Cronick is the Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe. We'll be discussing the outlook for provincial debt ratings March 5th at the Institute's Toronto headquarters with Adam Hardy of Moody's Canada, DBRS's Paul LeBain, and Stephen Ogilvie of S&P Global. Later in the month, the Toronto Transit Commission's CEO Rick Leary on growing North America's third largest transportation system and the one that relies the most on the fare box for funding. That's March 12th. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.
Thank you.